Now this morning, uh, in the lead up to Easter, we're looking at the, the second word from the cross, the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, and we're up to the second one, and it's the word of assurance from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Last week we looked at the first word from the cross, which was, truly I tell you, well, not that one, that's one that we're looking at this morning. Last week we looked at, Father, them, for they do not know what they do. The scene was as gruesome as you can possibly imagine. It was Calvary, it was Golgotha, the place of the skull, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It was the eve of the Passover celebration when Jewish pilgrims from all around Israel came from miles around for the most solemn event on the Jewish calendar. It was the eve of the Passover. When you normally come to Jerusalem, you don't, you, you don't go there prepared to witness something as gruesome as an execution, especially by crucifixion. And yes, that's exactly what it was. It was a public event held in a public place along a road where people would be coming into Jerusalem and they would see this, this gruesome sight. Why make it so public? Why not just take they were convicted criminals, why don't just take them away somewhere and do away with them? Well, it served as, as both punishment and as a deterrent so that everyone knew what would happen if you broke the law. You're not going to get away with it. That was the, that was the message. I suppose it's, it's a kind of reality TV show that we might have today. People, some of them are pretty bad and people can't seem to help themselves watching. They just have to watch it. The most the more distasteful, the more horrible and the more audience they seem to have. Three anguished bodies hung there that day. Each of these crosses carried three different individuals. There were some similarities between all three and there are some differences. Yes, they were all condemned, they were all nailed to the cross and they were all about to die. One cross, however, stands out 2,000 years later, the one in the middle, the centre one. He was and is our Saviour, Jesus Christ. He was innocent but he was there because it was God's plan from the foundation of the world that he would give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was there willingly in obedience to the Father. But the other two were criminals. They didn't want to be there. But Jesus was. He really had to be there. As someone said at his birth, 
Jesus was surrounded by beasts and now in his death he is surrounded by criminals. Now those three crosses have been called three different names and we're going to give them three different names here. The first one is the cross of rebellion and pride, verse 39. The cross of rebellion and pride. Pride is actually the root cause of all of our problems and it goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. It is the one sin that started the the snowball effect of our separation from God and it continues unabated in 2019. It's this natural instinct to take matters into our own hands. This instinct that tells us that we are free to do what we want and when we want. It makes us believe that we can actually forge our own destiny and mould reality because we are its master. This criminal was being punished for crimes he had committed and he had to pay the ultimate price. And he is the one who taunted Jesus with these words, aren't you the Messiah? There he is, nailed to a cross. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Obviously he wanted Jesus to prove himself and make him the immediate beneficiary of his demonstration of power. And it's quite natural for us to want to save our own skin, isn't it? But there is no remorse. There is no admission of guilt. There is no apology. And there certainly is no way that he could now turn back the clock and undo all the wrongs that he had done in his life. There is no proper recognition of the person of Jesus Christ. And he figures, even at this late stage, that if if Jesus can't grant him this this small favour of taking him down from the cross, then Jesus is not worth the time. It simply confirms his doubts. As far as he's concerned, Jesus, at best, he is a charlatan. At worst, he is a criminal paying for his crimes. He concludes that there is no one to save us, that we are left defiantly to our own devices. This is what uh, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said in the 1800s. But at least Nietzsche was intellectually honest enough to recognise the consequences of killing belief in God. If we finally declare that God is dead, then we are left to our own devices. We can forge our own future, but then we have to suffer the consequences. Now, British uh, broadcaster Malcolm Muggeridge told of a conversation he had with Svetlana Stalin, the the daughter of Joseph Stalin. And uh, they were working together, Muggeridge and and Svetlana were working together on a BBC production on the life of of her father. And according to Svetlana, as Stalin lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, 
He suddenly sat halfway up in bed, clenched his fist toward the heavens once more and then fell back upon his pillow and died. That's the way that Stalin died. The incredible irony is is that at one time Joseph Stalin was a seminary student. He was going to go into the ministry, into the priesthood. But he was influenced by Marx and then by Nietzsche and he made a decisive break from his belief in God. And this dramatic reversal of conviction resulted in a, in a hatred for all religion. And the name Stalin is not his real name. Uh, Stalin means, in Russian, it means steel. But it was given to him, this name was given to him by his contemporaries because of his character. He killed 20 million of his own people and even as he lay dying, his one last gesture was uh, a close fist toward God. His heart as cold and hard as steel, true to his name. And most people today live in defiance to God and while you might not clench your fist towards the heavens, you really couldn't care less what God thinks about the choices that you make. Under normal circumstances, you don't get to choose how you die, but we do choose how to live. And you and I are the sum total of the choices that we make. We are free to choose, but we are bound by the consequences of those choices. It's interesting that tonight we're going to hear from John Piper who wrote the book, Don't Waste Your Life. It's a challenge and he's going to, we're going to look at his, his message for us on that. Don't waste your life, he says. That's the challenge. Now, after taunting Jesus, this criminal expected an answer, didn't he? An explanation, even an excuse. What, you're just going to stand there? You're just going to be nailed to the cross? You're not going to do anything? No answer was given. And Jesus remained silent. He gave no comeback. Just as Isaiah had prophesied, he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth, Isaiah said, 700 years before the cross. Obviously, this man didn't take Jesus very seriously, even in his dying moments. And if you don't take Jesus seriously, he won't take you seriously either and simply leave you to your own devices. The other criminal, however, the one on the other side, he was different. He was different. He represents another cross. This is the cross of repentance and humility, verses 40 to 42. 
this other fellow, he wasn't an altar boy. He was also a criminal. He was also about to die. And oddly enough, at the start of the, the whole ordeal there, as they were getting nailed and as they hung there on the cross, according to Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, he, this criminal was also hurling insults at Jesus, just like his other mate. But there came a point somewhere, somehow, where these thieves' taunting turned to silence, from silence to awareness and from awareness to repentance. Somehow in a, in a short period of time, in a crucial period of time, he went through a transformation, as we like to call it, a conversion. And, and we have to ask ourselves, what is it? What is it that caused this turnaround? We can point to a couple of things. Firstly, Jesus prayed. Jesus' prayer. He heard the first words that Jesus uttered from the cross. The same words that we studied last week when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Somehow, Jesus' prayer, his behaviour on the cross, his demeanour, the way that he prayed for his enemies to the Father in heaven convinced him that this all this episode was just this gross miscarriage of justice. And he saw that Jesus, rather than being totally overcome with anger and rage at the injustice of it all, proclaims forgiveness to everyone around. Now this reaction was obviously part of the reason, I believe, why he was converted, the turnaround. Secondly, the sign above Jesus' head read, this is the king of the Jews. This sign was put there in, in three languages, uh, ordered by Pilate. It was not meant to be a declaration of truth, but rather... It was, there, it was put there sarcastically uh, to indicate that Jesus was being executed for treason, for claiming to be king above Caesar. And I think maybe the criminal realised this sign was actually true. Something that was meant to be mocking Jesus actually was declaring truth. Because he pleaded, he said, he pleaded with Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A kingdom needs a king. And this is the most important sentence that this fellow would have declared in his whole miserable life. A life lived in lostness, dedicated to crime, And he uttered these words to the only one who could actually 
make a difference and answer his prayer. Do something about it. He recognised his own sinfulness, his own culpability, and he now recognised that he was paying the wages of sin. And he, and before he he asked Jesus to to remember him, before that he actually rebuked his partner in crime on the other side. He actually said to him, "Don't you fear God?" He said since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. There's a story of a, uh, of a trial that went on for quite a while and the, the man originally went to trial and he declared himself not guilty, Your Honour. And so the trial just continued and continued and his defence team, the, it just went on and on. But then uh, after quite a few weeks, the man stands up and he said, uh, Your Honour, I would like to change my plea to guilty. And the judge sort of exasperated after all this time and says, we've spent all this time in this trial, you've wasted everybody's time and here you are, you know, suddenly declaring you're guilty. What, what made you change your mind? What made you change your plea? And the guy says, well, I heard all the evidence and obviously I'm guilty. And we all have a general idea of how this justice system works. We want the guilty punished and we certainly don't want the innocent to be convicted for something they did not do. Criminals understand the justice system better than most. Whether they admit it or not is another matter. In my experience, every time I visited the jails and to have a conversation with some of the inmates, they all declare their innocence. Nobody there was guilty. But this criminal certainly did. It also led him to recognise not only his own guilt, but he recognised the innocence of Jesus. He saw it as a terrible miscarriage of justice. Now, if I had been standing there as part of the crowd, because there was quite a bit of a crowd who turned up for the show, and heard this, you would have heard this ensuing conversation between those at the cross. And and after hearing this this plea from, from this criminal to Jesus, I probably would have turned to Jesus. Jesus, don't listen to him. He's just saying that. He's dying. Can't you see? He's just dying. Don't listen to him. He doesn't mean it. But I'm not Jesus. And I don't have to tell Jesus anything he doesn't already know. Fact is, Jesus knew him inside out. He knew his past, his present, 
and he knew his future. As a pastor, I get into these situations all the time where it's really hard to read people's motives and intentions. Are they genuine? Are they not? Are they serious? But Jesus read the heart like no one else. He saw a genuine guy who was remorseful with with an honest recognition of his predicament. And this is obviously quite a contrast to the way that most human beings behave and certainly a contrast to the other fellow who was hanging on the other cross. So we looked at two crosses so far. Let's look at the middle cross, the cross of grace and redemption in verse 43. The middle cross is a unique cross like no other. The death of Christ was quite different from that of the other victims. They died without any choice in the matter now, but they died because of the choices that they made earlier in life. Very different to Jesus. In advance of the crucifixion, he told his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus actually declared, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He was foreshadowing the crucifixion and he was already foreshadowing the resurrection. They were part of the same event. Max Lucado wrote, he said, God sat in silence while the sins of the world were placed upon his son. Was it right? No. Was it fair? No. Was it love? Yes. In a world of injustice, God once and for all tipped the scales in the favour of hope. End of quote. And Jesus responds with an instant answer to his prayer. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Significant, I think, that that the thief believed in Jesus while Jesus himself appeared to need saving. Jesus appeared as helpless as the victim himself, as this guy, not a king. Jesus was wearing a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. Beaten, flogged, he hung on a cross with his hands and feet nailed to the cross, bleeding and struggling to take every breath. That's why he didn't talk a lot. It was an effort to breathe, let alone talk. Despite this gruesome sight, the thief still believed. Think about that. The thief believed even when many of Jesus' own followers did not believe. They ran away. He believed even 
without waiting for the evidence of the resurrection and the ascension. As far as we can tell without seeing Jesus walk on the water, feed the multitudes, turn the water into wine, he believed in spite of the crowd of onlookers, but did not. He went against the flow of popular opinion that day. And when he believed, he made the most important request in all his life. And Jesus responded with this cry of assurance. Today you will be with me in paradise. Someone said, a man not fit to live on earth, God made fit to live in heaven. The word paradise is an interesting word. It actually comes from Persia. It's a Persian word that refers to a beautiful walled garden used by a king. When Every now and then when the, the emperor, the monarch, wished to honour one, uh, one of his subjects, he would invite him to take a walk with him in the garden. And obviously... Uh, we know about the gardens of, of Babylon. Jesus was promising the repentant rebel not only immortality but also an honoured place as a companion in God's garden. He had no time to prove himself. He had no time to do good deeds He had no time to go and undo all the evil that he had done. No time for any of that. All he he could do was plead for mercy at the hands of God. And I'm reminded of Jesus' promise in John 14. It says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be aware, may be where... I am. That's the promise for the child of God. And I'm I'm amazed at at how little people actually think about eternity. I'm amazed. I'm I'm always amazed. I mean, sure, when we or a loved one has has a brush with death, we start thinking about the afterlife for a few moments at least. But then life sort of goes on and we forget all about it and we move on. Have we really got it so good here on earth that we don't really need any belief in the afterlife for heaven or paradise? Are we so preoccupied with this life that we don't care about eternity anymore? But you know what? The longing of your heart says a lot about how you live your life today. What is the longing of your life? Where is your hope placed? So let me ask you, which cross is yours? You have two choices. Left or right, because the middle one is already taken. 
Only one person could be on that cross. And it's not you or me. We get to choose between the left or the right. The Bible says that we are all guilty and condemned to die. Reality of death is all around us. But Jesus came to live and die so that we might live in and through him. Do we believe that God has the power to forgive and save us? He rose from the dead to show us that he is more than powerful to do what he promises. What do we have to do? We have to believe. Start the relationship. Start the conversation. Start, take that gift that he has given to take it seriously. John 1.12 says, says this, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's a wonderful promise. The way I see it, you have two choices when it comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You will either mock him or you will repent. You have a choice. You still have a choice. If you are here this morning, you still have a choice. And I want to leave you with the words of Moses. The words of Moses. Shortly uh, shortly before he died, Moses, the servant of God, challenged the people of Israel with these with these words. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessing and curses. I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life, that you and your descendants might live. Choose to love the Lord your God and obey him and commit yourselves to him, for he is your life. He is our life. He is my life. And I pray that you will come to see that he is your life as well. Amen.